turn with me to two places, our kind of uh, source text for the last six weeks, Matthew 24. And also, if you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. I want to read first Peter's closing couple of words in 2 Peter 3, and then we'll read Jesus' words, his closing words from Matthew 24 and into Matthew chapter 25. 1 Peter's words. Now, the whole third chapter of 2 Peter is prophecy and times. But Peter doesn't really, he's not really specifically talking about the rapture of the church. What I want to bring your attention to is what he says to kind of close the loop and why it ties in with how Jesus speaks. 2 Peter 3, starting verse 17. You therefore, beloved, so we know he's writing to believers, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. You realize that you could be farther away from Jesus a year from now than you are right now? He says, lest you fall away from your steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked. Do you realize there's a lot of error out there right now? There's a lot of people being led astray, but grow. I don't care how long you've been saved. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him, while we were on our knees, be glory now and forever. Amen. Back to Matthew 24. Let's pick it up with a passage we had already read from last week. I told you I am of the mindset that Jesus is most assuredly speaking of the rapture of the church in these verses that start in verse, well, really kind of the pointing towards it in verse 36, but I'm going to pick it up with verse 40. Some don't believe, some think that's, oh, that's the second coming, that's in the tribulation. I personally believe this is directly related to the rapture. And I believe that the lead-in goes into what we're about to read, and I believe that the flow meant everything. Of course, nothing Jesus did was by accident, right? But the flow is very important. So let's pick it up again with what I believe is a picture. Jesus giving us a picture of the rapture, and then he goes into the stern warning, and then he goes into the parable, which is also a stern warning, of the wise and foolish versions. Verse 40, Matthew 24. And two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and the other left. I want to be taken, how about you guys? I do not want to be left behind. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. The Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his fat master has made him ruler over his household, to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant, when his master has come, will find him so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants, that's an admonishment to pastors and shepherds, 
and eat and drink with the drunkards, that's an admonishment to the whole church, the master, that servant, will come out on a day he is not looking for him, an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now you know that speaks of hell because Jesus said that elsewhere. Chapter 25. We'll um, move right into verse 1. That the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil with their vessels and with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy some for yourselves. When they went out to buy, the bridegroom came. While they went out to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went with him into the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also and said, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Let's pray again. Father, we, we need your help. Your word is so rich, it's so deep, it's so full of everlasting life, it's so sobering, it's full of warning, it's full of treasure. Lord, we need your spirit to understand it, not just understand it, to receive it, to believe it, to apply it. And Lord, I pray for your help, that you'd open our ears, soften our hearts, speak to each person. Everyone here that knows you as Lord and Savior will leave here in love with you. Those that don't know you will leave here knowing you as Lord and Savior. Those online, those here, we ask this. And I ask again, Lord, that you would anoint me by your Spirit, give me your help, that these people would hear from Jesus, and you'd remove me once again from the equation. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> from our study last week, we know directly from the scriptures that there is a rapture of the church. As 1 Corinthians 15, 51 tells us, the mystery of the rapture has already been revealed. We know that everyone will not taste death. Not everyone's going to taste death. That'd be great if that's us, if it was our generation. Some group, known only to God, God knows exactly how many souls will escape death. Exactly the number of end times believers, probably in the millions, are going to be changed instantly, and according to 1 Thessalonians 4.17, will be caught up into the clouds at the exact same time. And what's revealed to us through the apostles and the epistles sheds additional light on Jesus' words, and the apostles, they shed light Vice versa, so their writings shed light on what he says, what he says sheds light on their writings. And it's why I believe that the end of Matthew chapter 24 is a clear rapture lead-in to the sobering warning that closes out the chapter 
and begins chapter 25 and the parable of the virgins and then goes into um, the parable of the talents and all the way into the judgment of sheep and goats, sheep, uh, the sheep and the goats. But what Jesus does, I believe, at the end, remember the, par- the Olivet Discourse, it starts with Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple. And then he goes into this tr- uh, the, well, the beginning of sorrows, which we're in right now, right? Like nation against nation. China's rising. Russia's rising. You know, they, they were actually on two, sh- they were actually, their navies were aligned riding right through the Straits of Japan this week. China and Russia coming together. All of this war, you know, when will they, not if, when will they attack Taiwan? When will they bring down their computer systems? When will these things take place? When will North Korea actually do something really, you know, destructive? When all these things, but all these things are happening around us. We're in the beginning of the sorrows, and Jesus talks about that, and that all the false teachers that are out there today, and all the false religions representing Jesus' name, and then he goes into the seven-year tribulation, and then he circles back to the rapture. Now, why would he circle back to the rapture if everything was chronological? Most of it was chronological, but a lot of times, whenever you teach, uh, and some of you in this room are teachers or have been teachers, I, uh, some of you that are retired, some of you are still teaching, you know that when you teach, many times you circle back at the end to what is most relevant to right now. If you don't remember anything else, remember this kind of thing, right? And so the disciples, they have to be ready for the Lord to return at any time, the imminent return of Jesus that we talked about last week. And then Peter circles back too, after all that prophetic stuff in chapter 3, he says, make sure you don't fall away. And all this be ready, growing. And so that circling back is important. Now, a reoccurring theme that Jesus and the apostles made clear to the church was to take these prophetic truths to heart. To take personal stock personal inventory, to examine ourselves and our salvation. Are we indeed in Jesus Christ? Are we living for Christ? Are we ready right now to meet Jesus if he came today? And we already know that it's appointed for all of us to die, Hebrews 9.27. And then the judgment. Yet we also know there's a God-given exception. Remember, God can make exceptions. We can't. There's a God-given exception on that guarantee of death, not on judgment. Everyone's going to be judged. Everyone's going to be judged. You'll either stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is called the Bema seat, or the great white, you don't want to go to the great white throne judgment. That's a death sentence to to lake a fire. The judgment seat of Christ, all of our works will be judged. We'll find out, wow. That didn't amount to anything because I did it with a bad attitude. So uh, I worked at the festival, and all I did was complain in my mind the entire time. I got no credit whatsoever, zero credit. All I did was give a cavity that night. You know that. So, but all of our works will be judged. But the former mystery, which is now known as a unique exception, rapture, is an exception. Most everybody dies. It's a point of death, but the rapture is an exception, and we have the rapture of the church, which is now this understood mystery. So today, along with understanding the importance of being ready, we just sang in that song where the trumpet sounds in the song we were just singing, the worship. If that trumpet should sound, and Jesus summon us to the clouds, which would be great. By the way, Jesus summoned us to the cloud. You know, I, I, I like a lot of things about this world. 
and I might have a good lunch later, but I'll skip it to be with Jesus if he wants to take us all home. I mean, he can take me right now, and I don't have to finish this message. I'm good. There's nothing else in this world that I need to experience ever again that I would not trade if Jesus were to come in the rapture right now. Some of you that say, well, I, I still want to go to Disney World one more time, and I still want to see this island. Fine, you can wait. I, if he comes, I'm ready to go. But if he should summon us, that we, he also wants to, uh, us to understand the intricate picture and the glorious event that will be, betray, uh, that will be uh, portrayed and that we would deeply appreciate why there's a rapture. And to understand that it's imperative to the whole plan of God. It's very imperative. The church isn't teaching on it, but should be teaching on it. It would be like giving driver's ed, but never talking about red lights and green lights. It's imperative. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning. Be ready. And then Jesus said it himself, be ready, verse 44 of chapter 24. And this is part two of us looking at the rapture. This is what I call the rest of the story. Last week was the beginning, uh, laying the foundation, the eminency of Christ, why there's a pre-tribulation. But this is the rest of the story. So let's just jump right in. The rapture, let's see first, what do the scriptures say and reveal. We have the witness of different types and foreshadows and the feasts. I mentioned last week a principle of observation um, that has been recognized for two millennia in the body of Christ, in the church, ever since Jesus ascended up into heaven. Um, and that's the understanding that there is a great number of things that were concealed or hidden in the Old Testament that are revealed in the New Testament. Does that make sense? There's a great number of things that were mysterious, not, sometimes not even mysterious, not even seen. They were hiding in plain sight, but they're revealed in the New Testament. And especially, but not limited to, not limited to, especially related to Jesus, because there's others that, re, that are related to the church or to Israel. Let me also say that the very language of and if you hear myself or another pastor use the language of types or copies or shadows, we're not making that up. That's in the scriptures. Romans mentions it. Hebrews mentions it. It's to describe things or pictures in the old covenant. Types, copies, shadows. That are then fully or more revealed in the new covenant. I could give numerous examples. Let me let me give one related to Christ that is expressed in the New Testament and yet it sheds light on other types and other foreshadows that the New Testament does not address. Does that make sense? In other words, one that does get addressed in the New Testament teaches us some things about things that are not addressed but yet are visibly seen. In other words, the types and foreshadows that are taught by Jesus and they're taught by the apostles, they teach us to see things that the Old Testament doesn't always mention or aren't always detailed, but yet they're clearly visible. So let me give an, an illustration uh, from the scriptures that will make this clear. Let's take Hosea 11.1. 1. You guys ever read this verse? 
Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That verse is used one time in the entire Old Testament. Now, if you've ever read the Psalms, you might read a verse and you say, I feel like I've read this verse before. Some verses are repeated numerous times, especially in the Psalms, right? There's some Psalms where it's said three or four times in the same Psalm, right? And you say, well, that verse looks a lot like that. That's identical to that verse, right? Not this verse. It's said one time in the entire Old Testament, but then it's repeated in the New Testament with some new information, right? And there was death until Herod that it might be fulfilled. Now, not everyone knew that this word, that, that verse had actually a future fulfillment. Spoken by the Lord of the prophets, and out of Egypt I have called my capital S-O-N. You see that? Lowercase in the Old Testament, one-time verse. And in the New Testament, it tells us that that whole verse is speaking to Jesus. Because if you're talking to an Orthodox Jewish person today, they would say, There's, that verse is not about Jesus. It's about Israel. Out of is I called my son Israel. But Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah, but he also the life of Israel. And, then, and we also see repeating patterns out of Egypt. Remember, Abraham called up out of, remember he went down to Egypt, and God says, Abraham, get out of there, up to, the, up to the promised land. Moses was born in Egypt, called out of Egypt, and Moses said, the prophet like me will be raised up. Moses was called out of Egypt. Joseph's bones were taken up out of Egypt. And Jesus, as a little boy, was, had to run to Egypt with his parents, and then he was called up out of Egypt. So all of this, remember we talked about prophecy, has a recurring pattern, but it has a final fulfillment or a greatest fulfillment. So that tells us things about how do we see types and shadows that are in the Scripture. So let's take a look at one. Um, it's in Malachi chapter 4. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with heel in his wings. Now, this verse is never addressed in the New Testament, this verse, whereas the other one from Hosea is addressed in the New Testament. But when you look at this verse, never mention the New Testament. It's not, there's no commentary on it specifically. Is there any doubt that this verse refers to Jesus in your mind? He is everything in the verse. He's the healer. He's the sun that rose on the same time the S-U-N rose. As a matter of fact, in the verse, the sun, S-U-N, is capitalized. Jesus rose with the sun, and he even said to Jerusalem, 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 how I long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her under his wings. Guess which week he said that? Olive Discourse week, Passover week, crucifixion, Lord's Supper, same week. Is there any doubt that that verse is about Jesus? Now, on the road to Emmaus, he told the two men that all the scriptures in the Old Testament were about him. One by one, he could tell, how is that one about you? Let me explain. How about this one? Let me explain. How about this one? Let me explain. That's how it would go. So we won't even see them all, but my point is, when we study the scriptures, we'll be able to see more of these things. Um, you could adequately say that there was some mystery about Malachi 4.2, but the resurrection of Jesus clears the whole mystery up. That's about him. And there's silence for 400 years right at the end of that chapter, and that's called the, the silent years 
and then comes the Messiah. So with these things in mind, although we're always to start, when we study Scripture, and you guys are to be students of the Word of God, when we study Scripture, we're always to look at the plain meaning of the text first. We're never to impose meanings that are unsupported by the Scriptures themselves. We're not to impose meanings that are unsupported by the Scriptures. And in many cases, there's some things we'll see that we can't be dogmatic about, and you shouldn't be dogmatic about something. Some things you just have an opinion about, but doesn't mean that uh, you know, somebody else's view uh, is incorrect. But we can be confident or encouraged by parallel Scriptures, though. Parallel Scriptures always inform us, right? So when you see parallel Scriptures in multiple places, that gives us an understanding. In other words, if the Bible talks about the wings of God in other places, it tells us what one writer means if he's saying something like under the wings or some, something along those lines. I believe based on what and how Jesus and the apostles taught that the Holy Spirit, who's the one that guides us into all truth, Jesus said, I'll give you the Spirit to guide you all into all truth, the Holy Spirit endeavors that we see the pictures of Jesus in Scripture. He wants us to see Him on the pages of Scripture. That we see covenant Israel when we need to see covenant Israel. That we see the church or the bride of Christ where it makes clear representation or there's a clear representation or presentation of the church. So what about the rapture of the church? Are we imposing that on the scriptures or has it been there and that's why Paul says this mystery is now revealed. The rapture of the church, was it already visible before Paul and the apostles started addressing the mystery? Well, there were foreshadows prior to the mystery. Here is a list of raptures all throughout the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, all of the raptures that are found in the Scriptures. Now Enoch was a solo rapture. He was just him talking to the Lord, having a great day. And Enoch lived 365 years. Isn't that an odd? You think that was coincidental? No, it was a picture that you're to be walking with God every day. Every day. You don't take Days off. Say, so, yeah, I like to walk with God almost all the time. All the time. Enoch was a solo rapture. He just goes up into heaven with, with God. Elijah was a solo. Didn't, it wasn't multiple people. It wasn't anybody else. Even Elisha didn't go with him. He had to stay back and take on the mantle and do the work that Elijah was doing. Jesus' ascension, of course, was solo, but he's the only one that could rapture himself. <laughs> so he just takes himself up into heaven, and the angels say, why are you standing around here looking here? This same, in the same manner he went up, he will return. Philip was a temporary rapture. Uh, I was telling the first service, this would be great when you're stuck in traffic. Or, you know... I, I could just avoid the TSA line and everything else. Just, Lord, can you just take me to Paris? There, you know. So uh, Phyllis was temporary. God took him, and he immediately ends up in another place. The next thing, he's teaching somewhere on the Gaza Strip, which would be uh, similar to uh, our, our geography today. Paul temporarily, we believe, went up into heaven, taken up into heaven. John, very possibly in John chapter 4, we see the door open. And then, the, obviously, the rapture of the church, all living believers at whatever time, so if that's 2028 or if that's 2048, which would be 100 years after Israel coming into the land, if you want to take one generation, um, whatever year Jesus calls his church home, all believers, obviously that won't be a solo, that'll be millions. It'll be the largest rapture 
But the fact that there are other raptures tell us something about how God plans to work, right? The fact that there's any raptures at all tell us, hmm, we know he works in a repeating pattern. We just saw it. Out of Egypt I called my son, and we see that repeating pattern. And so God is going to do this work, and it's, it's been uh, obviously something that we have seen uh, in the past. Now, both in the case of Enoch, uh, you know, he was taken up before the great flood came, and so he was raptured uh, before a- any judgment would come. We'll take a look at some other uh, pre-wrath uh, pre- rescues uh, in just a minute. Actually, let's go ahead and take a look at that. So we've got um, in the scriptures um, there were also pre-wrath. In other words, before God poured out wrath, there was times when God rescued individuals out. Like we would be rescued, Jesus, you know, pray that you escape these things. Pray that you're not having to go through this. Enoch was taken up. Now Noah's interesting. Noah was taken both up and through. I want to come back to that in just a second. This is my own perspective on on Noah for a second. And then Lot was taken out before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, right? So Lot had, the city could not be destroyed until Lot was taken out. And then the wrath of God fell, and then Enoch was taken up, and then later, shortly after, not really shortly, but not too much longer, um, relative to their lifespans, then comes the flood. Noah's interesting to me. Uh, This is just, again, this is my own perspective. This is bonus material. So uh, this is my own perspective. Um, I find it interesting, when I look at Noah, uh, Noah lived well before Israel was ever a nation. There was no a- Abraham comes later. Noah lives well before Israel's ever a nation. Noah lives well before the church is ever established. That's still, you know, th- a couple thousand years out. So, right? Noah's well before Abraham and Israel is ever established. He's well before the church. But Noah, um, in his loins, if you will, is both the church and Israel. As a matter of fact, the Jewish writers, the rabbinical writers, like to include Noah regularly because they recognize that Abraham, through Shem, goes to Noah. And so Noah is often, he was the first to do, you know, we see him doing certain types, you know, that builds the, uh, builds the altar and builds the sacrifice and all that stuff. And some of the same laws that were given to him, they then become part of the Ten Commandments, right? So, um, so even there's some obvious connection points that, you know, uh, many people, Jewish writers look at Noah as a priest-like figure. But again, the church and the church and uh, the nation of Israel are both within the loins of Noah. We're all within Noah. Every Jew and Gentile comes from Noah. So that's the bottom line. Um, but what's interesting about that is the church with the rapture will go up and out of danger but the remnant of Israel will go through and Basra through the rapture, and they're protected from danger. And Noah, the boat does both. It goes up above everything, but also goes through everything, and they're safe inside. So you can actually see the church, this is my own perspective, the church going up, Israel going through, but both are safe. So anyway, that's just uh, bonus material. Do what you want with it. But anyway, speaking of Israel... Speaking of Israel, let's look at the feasts that were given to Moses and how we see Jesus in these feasts. Now, some of you have probably uh, had 
exposure to messianic congregations or uh, my, my good friend Sam will be here at the end of the month and he has been very involved in you know, reaching the lost you know, people of Jewish uh, ethnicity all around the world and, and messianic congregations and planting and, and uh, bringing many, many Jewish people to Christ. Um, but a lot of people are not that familiar with the feast and what was given to Moses and its symbolic nature related to things like the church, like the rapture, and more specifically, just everything about Jesus. And so the feast revealing Jesus and the first, so the feasts are spring feast and fall feast. You guys know that? There's seven feasts. What do we know about seven? Seven is the number of completion. God completed the world in seven days. Uh, the tri tribulation period has to be seven years, seven years being completion. The seven spirits of God in the book of Revelation. So seven is completion. The seven feasts are God's complete view of the life and ministry of Jesus revealed in these feasts. So let's take a look at the first feast. And again, the spring feasts come first. Uh, the Passover is the first one. And we know that Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. He will make that clear at the Lord's Supper himself. This is my body which is broken for you. He drank this in remembrance of me. We know that he himself is the Passover lamb. John says, behold, the lamb of God. Jesus is the lamb. Uh, so then we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the same week at the end of that same Passover week, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now you see I've got the Jewish names, uh, the Hebrew names beside it. Um, and then Jesus, we know the bread had to be unleavened, leaven, and that, by the way, leaven doesn't always mean sin in the Bible, but sometimes it means sin in the Bible, right? But it doesn't always, uh, but in this case it does. It, you had to take the leaven out, there could be no leaven, no sin, and if you've ever had matzah, you know the little, little holes and the stripes in it, we're healed by his stripes, and he was pierced for us, so Jesus is the unleavened, he's the sinless body. Uh, we have the Feast of First Fruits. Um, Jesus, when, it, when you look at the Feast of First Fruits, um, understand that um, Jesus' resurrection, we know that Jesus rose on the first day of the week as the sun was rising. As the sun was rising, Jesus rose on the first day of the week. But not just the first day of the week, he actually rose on the day of the Feast of First Fruits. He rose on that specific day. As the priest would be getting everything ready, Jesus rising first day of the week, and also it was on the feast day of the feast of first fruits, which is why Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, now, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits. Right? So Jesus is the first fruits. Then we have, you wait 50 days and Penta being five. 50 days to Pentecost, also known as Shabbat. And just like when Moses brought the law down that day, the Holy Spirit came down. Instead of people, 3,000 dying because they were in a sinful state, 3,000 are saved because of God's amazing grace. And we see that Pentecost fulfills this fourth element of the timeline of Jesus, of the ministry of Jesus, of the life of Jesus and then there's this long summer break in between, this long time where all it is is harvesting 
and tilling and tilling and tilling the ground. And guess where we're at? We're right there. We are tilling the ground, and it's hard ground, and no one's listening, and most people don't want any part of Jesus, and they're way more excited about the eagles playing today than Jesus' wings. Right? Eagle fans say, no, we're not. Have you seen our team this year? No, we're not that excited about it. That's all right. We're right there with you. But I digress. Uh, next, so there's this long gap, which is representative of the church age and the age of grace. We're in this long gap period. But when the gap comes to an end, it's initiated by the fall feast, the second coming of Jesus, and the rapture of the church. Um, of course, the, the end second coming is different than the rapture. But let's, I want to focus more on the Feast of Trumpets here um, than any of the, any of the others. So, um, Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah, um, it also shares the name for the feast now of Rosh Hashanah. I'll get into that in just a second because you've probably all heard Rosh Hashanah many times. That term is pr pretty uh, well known. But when the trumpet sounds, Jesus gathers his bride. Now, first, both, both 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, and 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, uh, in referencing the rapture of the church, they both mention the blowing of the trumpet, both passages. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. They both mention the blowing of a trumpet as the Lord calls his church, his bride, to meet him in the air. Yom Teruah means day of blasting, a trumpet blasting, not dynamite blast. Day of blasting, blasting the trumpet. The Feast of Trumpets is on the first day of the month. At the new moon, when the moon is dark except for a little crescent sliver of light, just a little sliver of of light, um, and so uh, we can see that as a picture as well. That when Jesus returns for His church, it'll be mostly dark everywhere. There'll be a little bit of light shining. There'll be a remnant of light shining. Most pulpits will be teaching false stuff or tickle the ear stuff. What Paul said, they'll just be heaping up teachers that make them happy and just give us something fluffy. It'll be mostly dark. It'll be mostly deceptive, but a little bit of light will be shining. A little remnant. Now, this feast is in the month of Tishri, which is the seventh month. Could that be coincidental? <laughs> it's in the seventh, remember, seventh is completion. So it's in the seventh month, Tishri, the seventh month on the Jewish religious calendar. And, of course, we know seven means completion. But it's also the first month on the Jewish civil calendar, hence why it's celebrated as Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, which means head of the year. So this unique date and feast is simultaneously the completion of one thing and the brand new of another. Hmm, that sounds interesting. The completion of one thing and the starting of something else. Could this perhaps be the completion of the church age, and the starting of the 70th week. The starting of the final, Israel's final, uh, what God has to uh, complete with the nation of Israel. Now, after the Jewish diaspora, 
Uh, Jews were spread all over the world. This came after, after Rome destroyed Jerusalem and took many people captive. And you, they had had multiple diasporas before this, right? With the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. But the Roman diaspora just got Jewish people even at further ends flung all over. And then, of course, many other things would happen at the Inquisitions and things that would kind of even push to the place where you find Jewish populations in every corner of the globe virtually. But um, as they were then spread around the world, uh, Rosh Hashanah, the civil date, Rosh Hashanah, the civil date, remember you have the religious date, um, Yom Teruah and the civil date of Rosh Hashanah, they share the same Feast of Trumpets. The civil date began to be celebrated over a two-year period. I mean, sorry, two-day period, not two-year. Over a two-day period, so that all of those that were living in different time zones, so Rosh Hashanah became a two-day period, all those living in different time zones would all be part of the celebration. Nobody's left out, regardless of what time zone you're in. And it became to be known as, and it still is today, one long day, even though it's two days. Rosh Hashanah becomes a two-day celebration, Feast of Trumpets, two days, but known as the one long day. And because Rosh Hashanah is now celebrated as a two-day feast, not the original one day, but as a two-day feast, to include all the time zones of the world, this feast has also come to be known in the Jewish, Jewish community, it's well known, that the kind of phrase is that it is a mystery that no one knows the exact day or hour that Rosh Hashanah begins. Nobody knows exactly when Rosh Hashanah begins. That's kind of interesting too, isn't it? That no, you know, it's come to be known as the feast that no one really knows exactly when it starts. Uh, so that is very interesting also. Um, let me see here. Let me stop right here for just a second. Because there's more. You know there's more here. All the moons, uh, all the new moons, uh, so each month has a new moon. You have 12 months, so you have 12 new moons. They were all to be initiated with a short trumpet blast, but not the Feast of Trumpet. It was initiated with a long blast to indicate its uniqueness and its sacredness of that seventh month. It had a long blast. All the other le- short blasts, not this one, long blast. The trumpet to be used was not the silver trumpets in the temple. It was always to be the shofar. For the Feast of Trumpet, had to be the shofar. The shofar was a ram's horn, same horn that's used in the Galilean wedding custom. And hold that thought, because we'll get to that uh, in a second, why that's important when we get to the Jewish wedding and Galilean specifically. Uh, but one last fascinating perspective on the Feast of Trumpets is from... Um, someone by the name of Zola Levitt, uh, who's now with Jesus, uh, not here with us anymore. But in Pastor Ray Bentley's book, uh, The Holy Land Key, this is what Zola says about the trumpet, specifically related to the Feast of Trumpets. The trumpet, or the shofar, was the signal, so this is when the Feast of Trumpets would be announced with this trumpet long blast of the shofar. The trumpet of the shofar, was the signal for the field workers to come to the temple. The high priest actually stood on the southwest parapet 
of the temple and blew the trumpet so it could be heard in all the surrounding fields. At that instant, the faithful would stop harvesting. And even if there was more crops to bring in, they would immediately drop what they're doing, leave everything, and go worship. When that trumpet sounded, no matter what you're doing, but I have more harvesting to do. No more harvesting. Drop it. Head to the temple. The last two in the timeline and the ministry and the life of Jesus, Yom Kippur, the Feast of Atonement, Israel will be afflicted. Remember, Yom Kippur, Israel was supposed to afflict themselves. Well, the affliction will come in the tribulation and they will see Jesus as their atoning sacrifice. And then the last is the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus will come and gather all from both the nation of Israel, the remnant there, and the body of Christ, the church, everyone will be gathered together, all saints to himself, and he will tabernacle with us for all eternity. First for the thousand year reign of Christ and then into eternity. Uh, uh, Sam Nadler, Dr. Sam will be here at the end of the month, and that's his chart and his feast, very similar to what I just kind of laid out in my own little outline there, but that's Sam's chart, which actually has a kind of cool, some cool breakdown. He has that in his Messiah and the Feast book and in a lot of seminars he does and things of that nature. Okay, so we've got to close with um, this last key perspective. Now, we've already been looking at a lot of the why. The feasts themselves are part of the why. The full epicenter view of Jesus is, is obviously the why. But we want to look at this one last um, perspective and why is the biggest question? Why is there a rapture? We can certainly see the full revelation of Jesus. We see that Jesus is the epicenter of not just the feast, but the Old Testament and the New Testament and our faith and everything related to God's revealing himself to us. Um, but his covenant with Israel and the bride both have to be fulfilled. The covenant with Israel and the bride both have to be fulfilled. Uh, Jesus came to the lost house of Israel. It says that's where he came for. He came first to the lost house of Israel. Uh, but he came to them as a nation. And remember, we know another metaphor, um, another picture, a type, a foreshadow. When Joseph's brothers, Joseph first came to his brothers, they said, we don't want you, we'll sell you into slavery. Second time he revealed himself, they bowed down before him, Right? and he becomes the savior of them. Otherwise, they would have died of starvation. So Jesus will come first to the house of Israel. Israel rejects, but the second time, he's going to bring Israel to himself. Well, there's two covenants, and they're both in force. God's covenant with Israel and God's covenant with the church. We're betrothed to Jesus right now in the covenant of betrothal marriage, but the final fulfillment has yet to take place, right? We have not had the marriage feast yet. The doors have not been shut yet. That hasn't taken place. But we're, and then Israel, theirs is still in force too, but they haven't yet fulfilled everything that God has for them. Israel is pictured in the Bible as a seed planted. And they grow up to be the fig tree and the olive tree. Both those are symbolic of Israel. Not every fig tree representation in the Bible represents Israel, but the fig tree in general does represent Israel. So does the olive tree. And so they were planted and to bear fruit. And Jesus will ensure that Israel eventually bears all the fruit that God designed, which has never really happened in the full um, 
context of what God has planned. Uh, but it will eventually will happen, and in respect to the church, the church is more of a picture of the bride of Christ, different covenant, which these covenants again will eventually kind of come together, and we're currently betrothed to Christ until that remainder of the marriage ritual is completed. Hence, uh, the rapture we see in its Jewish Galilean wedding custom, we can see that when Jesus is presenting um, the language that he uses to describe the church, he's giving it from the context of where he lived and where he ministered to Israel. Because again, the church is grafted in. We're not Israel, but we're very connected. Does that make sense? We're very, very connected. And so as Jesus comes to the lost house of Israel, he's still establishing the church. And where did he establish the church? In Israel, that's where he came to do the ministry. And most of his life he lived in Galilee. And the majority of his ministry was there in Galilee. And it was there in Galilee, you'll recall in our study of the book of John, he went to a city called Cana. And Cana in Galilee, uh, he goes to a wedding, and it's at a wedding he performs his first miracle. Do you believe that was a coincidence? That his first miracle was at a wedding? No. Um, it was no accident. It was to foreshadow his own commitment to the church would be him as a bride, I mean, him as a bridegroom, and the church as the bride. He also did the miracle is that when he turned the water into wine, the best wine was saved for the very end of that celebration. The very best is saved right now. The best of the wine. Everything is saved right now for the marriage supper of the Lamb. The very best of everything is being saved for when we are finally with Jesus at the end of the age. Now we know here in modern times uh, some things about the Galilean wedding customs that we didn't know in the past that inform us more of this beautiful picture that is laid out. And I want to close uh, just kind of walking you through uh, things that were part of the Galilean wedding tradition that directly tell us, wow, everything of Jesus's, the way he spoke, the way he lined things up, us as the bride, it's a perfect picture. Now understand that weddings in the Middle East at the time of Christ were of far greater importance to the entire community than today. I mean, I know weddings are a big deal today, but not to the whole community. It's usually just to the family and friends that it matters to. But at that time, it mattered to the whole community anywhere in the Middle East, not just in the Jewish context, but all over the Middle East. Um, it was the event to be a part of at the time of Christ 2,000 years ago there in the Middle East. And specifically in a Jewish Galilean wedding, they had customs that we want to look at and understand. First of all, so for the wedding to, um, to, to kind of proceed and to go to the point where this woman and this man will become husband and wife, a written proposal, and by the way, we have a written proposal from God, right? A written proposal from the groom was read aloud by the groom's father. We have that too. This is my son in whom I am well pleased, right? Um, my, this is my son, hear him. We have, uh, so the, the proposal was writ, read aloud by the groom's father in front of witnesses. The entire process would then establish a new covenant. Jesus says, I establish a new covenant. He says that at the Lord's Supper. The dowry, uh, a dowry was given, but it was not to be a bride price. The dowry was given as insurance should anything happen to the groom. 
By the way, Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit when he left till he returns. The groom presented a cup of wine called the cup of joy. Isn't that great? Your marriage should be a joy, folks. You tell that to your spouse this week. Say, remember, we have a cup of joy. You're not acting joyful. Cup of joy. That's what it was. So the cup of joy was given to the bride, and she had the choice to accept it or reject it and not drink from it. If she drank from it, this solidified the betrothal. But she could give it back without drinking. And by the way, that was actually unique in the Middle East. And the Jewish context that you, the bride could actually reject is in the rest of the cultures, the bride didn't have a choice. But here the bride can say no. And people today can say no to Jesus if they want to say no. Bad choice, but they can say no. And when she accepts and drinks from it, she hands it back to the groom, who then drinks of it, and the groom says this, you are now consecrated to me by the law of Moses, and I will no longer drink of this cup until I drink it with you in my father's house. Does that sound familiar to you? Let me stop right here for just a second. Uh, now we know that in Jesus' three-year ministry um, and in the week after Passover, um, and certainly even in the week of Passover, uh, many things went over their heads that they didn't get immediately. Many things Jesus would say that were like, that later on, light bulbs started going off for the apostles. Like, how did we miss that? How do we, let's write an epistle. You know, that, how, do we, how did we not see and understand? But they later would understand. Jesus even said, you later understand these things. They missed certain truths. But, but even if they weren't seeing some of these pictures the night of, let's say, the Passover meal, and Jesus saying things that they should have had the connection points, even if they weren't seeing that, I'm pretty sure they saw them later, and we see them show up in Paul's writings and Peter's writings, and you can see clearly they would see these things in hindsight. Um, and it's in the epistles later that Paul speaks of the mystery, and he speaks of the rapture. But the disciples, uh, they would have heard either immediately or later on, it would have kind of all clicked, the clear wedding language that Jesus is overlaying of the Passover. Now remember, the Passover was about the exodus. It was about Israel being released from the grip of Pharaoh and the blood applied that the firstborn would be spared and all of that stuff. And all that was true, but the original meaning had a greater fulfillment, which would come with Jesus in the, in the Passover meal. But Jesus now lays over top of the Passover meal the wedding language. And he takes and says that the whole thing is about him. So we actually see the Old Covenant and the New Covenant right in plain view together, right there in the same, in the same meal. Both covenants are visible. They're both within view. Um, now back to the Jewish Galilean wedding. After the, after the betrothal ceremony was witnessed by the witnesses, now you, now you had a covenant, a new covenant was put in place. The groom then goes and leaves for about a year. He just goes away and they are betrothed, but they will be physically apart for a significant amount of time. Does that sound familiar? We're currently physically apart from Jesus. Not spiritually. We have the Holy Spirit, but we're not physically. We can't touch his nail-pierced hands right now. Later we will. So during that time, he builds an attachment to his father's home. Jesus said he would do the very same thing in John 14 too. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. The bride during that same year, she's with her bridesmaids, acquires fabric to make her wedding gown. And she is to stay pure during that time. 
She is to stay a virgin. She is to continue to work at her daily work and responsibilities. And she is to be ready. As for the wedding day and the Galilean custom, only the father of the groom knew the day or the time of the wedding. Only the father of the groom knew the day or time of the wedding. Not even the son knew. Does that sound familiar? Once the son's preparations were complete, he would wait for his father's word. His groomsmen would be with him. His father would finally say, go get your bride. And he would then grab a shofar. Same as the high priest would do on the parapet. He would grab a shofar and he would blow the shofar loud enough that everyone in the city could hear it and all those that are choosing to come to the wedding would hear it and come. Now the arrival of a Galilean groom would always take place at night. Remember the moon, little crescent of light. Jesus said, I'll come. Well, he didn't say, I'll come. He used the, he used the analogy, coming as a thief in the night. But we see the same picture. Nighttime, thief in the night, moon, little crescent. Only the light of lamps would be able to light the way. Does that sound like... That matches up, where he says, make sure your lamps have oil. Five wise, five fools. The lights of the lamps would be the only way to light the way. Remember that the feast trumpet is that little sliver. But the bride, not knowing the day or the hour, but she would know the season. She would know the season. In the season, getting close, would begin to wear her wedding dress to bed every night. Can you see why Jesus said... You better have the oil ready. Better be ready. You don't need lamps in the daytime, folks. If it's daytime, you don't, none of us are lighting. None of you I see with a flashlight right now. We have plenty of light. When the groom comes to the bride, she comes out with her bridesmaids, and in the uniqueness of the Galilean ritual, the bride was then lifted up and put on a chair and lifted up into the air and carried to the father's house. In fact, the Galilean description was that this was called flying the bride to the father's house. Flying the bride to the father's house. And there, and only there, when they got to the father's house, they would have a feast. And Jesus said at the Last Supper that he eagerly awaited sitting down with the disciples with his bride in his father's house. Now related to the Galilean wedding feast, and this is of the utmost importance, Anyone who was not inside the doors, when the feast began, the doors would be shut. It did not matter who you were, you were not being let in once the doors were shut. Can you see why Jesus revealed at the Last Supper in his Olivet Discourse for the church to be ready, for the virgins to be ready, for the wise virgins? Um, listen, I mentioned last week uh, that a Ponce Foundation uh, had found that 82% of professing Christians only read their Bibles Sunday morning when a pastor says, open your Bible. Folks, I can tell you the Holy Spirit would never tell you ever to only read your Bible on Sunday. Ever. The Holy Spirit would never say, hey, just crack it on Sunday. The Holy Spirit would never say that. A separate Lifeway study found that 85% of Americans disagree with the Bible's core beliefs. Now you know tons of Americans think they're Christians and are not. I don't say that with happiness. I, I'm just saying that I'm saying that as a re, that's a reality. But 15, the 15 percent 
uh, is I think who Jesus is speaking. The fifteen percent who do believe in the core of beliefs of the Bible, I believe, is who Jesus is really speaking to because he says, ten virgins." I believe he's speaking to people who actually believe the Bible is true and still don't really have much love for Jesus at all. And people that have a head knowledge but haven't really been born again. We have, uh, Paul Washer said recently, one of the most ripe harvest fields is the American pews and seats in our country. And so many people that believe, the, they're the 15, I believe the Bible, but they themselves have never really been redeemed. They've never been totally transformed and changed by the blood of Jesus. And so I believe he's speaking to that group when he's saying, look, you can believe all this stuff and still not be ready and not really have any kind of love for me uh, because he's telling these t- ten virgins, five of you don't have any oil whatsoever. But do they, do we, do we, have, a, do we have a real genuine faith? You have to ask yourself in the mirror of God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit, Lord, where am I? A love for Christ by being born again of the Spirit will give us the oil of the Spirit in our life. And once you have the real oil of the Spirit, you don't ever just say, I don't need to, I don't need to maintain this at all. No, no. You, you have a, I was telling the first service, it's not that I, there's no goodness in me, nor in you. It's not that you're so good that you say, I'm going to read my Bible today. I'm going to forgive people. I'm going to be joyful. No, the Holy Spirit causes you to do these things. The Holy Spirit says, you know, when you don't feel like reading, the Holy Spirit says, it's not about how you feel. It's about what you need. And so you you keep the lamp filled with oil. It's really God keeps it filled with oil. Let's be clear. God keeps it filled with oil, but he knows we want it filled with oil. But if you don't want it filled with oil, that means you've not been redeemed yet. But if you do want it filled with oil, you know you've been saved. The fact that you care, the fact that you say, no, I'm not going there because it's just a checkbox. I'm going there because I want to grow in Jesus. Remember Peter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit that draws us to the Word. It's the Spirit that draws us to pray. It's the Spirit that draws us to worship. It's the Spirit that says, be joyful. It's the Spirit that says, I delight in doing the law of the Lord. It's the Spirit that brings us continually to the throne of grace where the oil is refined and purified and refilled. Amen? Amen. And that is what Jesus, the bride had a role to play. She couldn't just sit there and nothing. No, she had to be stitching and getting ready. And you and I have a role to play. You're going, Jesus said, I'm going to give you everything you need to do, but now I'll give you the Holy Spirit to help you do it. But you can't put it off and say, well, I'll do it when after I've kind of sowed all my wild oats and did every little thing that I want to do, then at the very end, and you saw these five virgins, it's too late for that. And by the way, I've heard pastors and teachers over the years preach that while those five are also saved, they're just going to go through the tribulation. Um, Jesus said they will be cut in two and they will be given their portion with the hypocrites and they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is not a born-again believer. That is not, and nowhere does that say they go through the tribulation and they just kind of had to deal with a little extra tribulation because no, he's saying... They're lost. So the, the point is, man, I'm speaking to the body of Christ. I'm speaking to people that are, you know, sitting in churches. You've got to know, is Jesus your Lord and Savior or not? Mm-hmm. Let's close in prayer. Amen. Proverbs 21, 20 says, There is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise. See, it's the Lord that puts, the Lord that puts the oil 
in us. The oil of the Spirit, the oil very often is a picture of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. But the question is, are we ready? Are we ready? And even the wise virgins need to be ready. Even if there's oil, there's a, there's a readiness to all of us. I really believe that many times, Jesus, I see the Apostle Paul preach, uh, would teach this way sometimes, Jesus will give the widest range of consequences to awaken us to, even if you're born again, to jostle us. Does that make sense? The widest possible range. So even if you, I, I am born again, but I am really, really apathetic lately. Jesus is speaking to you too. Not that you're lost, but that you must wake up. Amen? Amen. And Paul said it's high time that we awake out of our sleep. So whatever it takes, he will get our attention. These are very sobering words. And, but if you stay abiding in Jesus, they're not words to be feared. They're words that you then preach to other people or share to other people. Say, no, you need to, you need to know this. This is what Jesus said. So they can be ready. But uh, as the worship team is just going to play softly, uh, we're going to get ready and we're going to take the elements of the Lord's Supper. But before we do, uh, before we even do that, just bow your heads. I just want to ask, is there anyone here today? And I, I don't want to, this message is mostly to believers. Jesus is talking to the 12 apostles. Um, he was speaking to the church when he, when he said these words. But yet he wanted them to know that there is always going to be, and he said there's another place, there's tares among the wheat, people that are not really wheat. They're not yet truly born again. They're not really saved. They're not really ready to meet God. Is there anyone here that says, I, I want to be ready. I want to be saved. I want to give my life to Christ. I, I want to ask him to forgive me of my sins that I would know that if Jesus should come back, I would meet him in the air. And then if I know, if I were to die of any car accident, COVID, heart disease, doesn't matter what it is, I would know that I have a home in heaven and Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Raise your hand. I want to pray with you if there's anyone at all that would say, that's me. I want to give my life to Christ. I want to be saved. We're saved from something. There really is a hell to come, but there really is a heaven to gain. Anyone at all, just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. I don't want to assume everyone here knows Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Anyone at all, just raise your hand. Raising your hand doesn't save you. It's, it's, a, it's a cry out to God for mercy that saves us. A recognition and an admission. If we all know the Lord, let's take a few minutes to just search our heart and say, Lord, have I been foolish lately? Have I been half asleep lately? Have I been putting off, rather than putting on the whole armor of God? Am I abiding in you or have I been abiding in everything else? Just confess those things. You know what's great about the Lord? You don't have to go to do 90 days of penance. You can say right now, Jesus, forgive me. And he does. If you mean business, he'll mean business. Amen? And then we'll take it to the Lord's Supper together. Just take, pray for a moment and the worship team will lead us. And then I'll close it with these elements.